Hello, and thank you for tuning in. This podcast is a part of a Bible study series led by our local retired pastor, Dr. Dan Stinson, exploring the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and six common themes found within. This week, we focus on the theme, Sin and Forgiveness. Okay, today we are looking at sin and forgiveness. So the first thing we have to do is define terms. What do you think of when you hear the word sin? Actions displeasing to God. Actions displeasing to God. Okay. I think it can also be thoughts. Thoughts. You know what? I haven't done the right thing, but I know the right thing. Okay. So we just are talking about omission and commission. Some sins are what we don't do, and some sins are what we do do, right? Um, It's tricky. In Christianity, there's so many divisions that everybody sees sin differently. Within Roman Catholicism, there's venal sins and there are mortal sins. Sins that you commit simply because you're human, sins that you commit because you willfully do something or willfully don't do something. Um, those are reasonably good terms. There's also what we have heard over the years, the seven deadly sins. Anybody know what they are? Do you remember them? <laughs> Gluttony. Now that's one for Methodists with the amount of dinners that we have. Gluttony, sloth, sloth, pride, sloth, lust, Wrath and envy. Right? What is sloth? Laziness. No. Uh, John Wesley always admonished his people to be gainfully employed. Never trifle away time. Uh, which I remembered many, many times at annual conference, they kept thinking, John, you must be rolling in his grave with the amount of trifling we are doing with time, (laughs) debating should the word be shall or should for 45 minutes. Uh, Okay. So what we need to look at then is what's one way we can get a handle on sin? Uh, If we get to basic Ten Commandments, As we said before, the first four are the ways in which we love God. The other four, six, are how we love one another. In other words, how do we keep the family together? How do we honor and respect one another? So for me, sin comes down to something basic. It's not fulfilling or demonstrating our love for God, not fulfilling or demonstrating our love for fellow man and woman. So that, to me, then takes it out of the realm of nitpicking. Um, when I was just this morning online rereading the list of sins listed in Roman Catholicism. Uh, it's a massive list, and it's an open-ended list. Some of them are more modern than others. Some are older than others. Uh, are those sins? Well, probably because they fall into either doing or not doing one of those restrictions or one of those 
encouragements, you know, because realistically, the Ten Commandments is not that they are restrictive, as they are instructive. There's a big difference. Okay, so when have you seen sin committed? <laughs> I, I know exactly where your mind went on that one. <laughs> I remember coming back from my trip to Africa, <clears throat> and my father-in-law said to me, wasn't it sad to see all that hunger? Because we were there at the time when we were in what we called the hunger season. You know, you had the rainy season, the dry season, and the hunger season, which meant we waited 36 hours to get food. I mean, it just wasn't available. And he said, wasn't that sad? I said, it was sad in Africa. But when I come back to the United States with a full abundance and I see people starving, that's no longer sad. It's sinful. difference. Okay. So John is aware that sin is real. Sin is operating. And he says he's writing this particular letter, which is the first letter of John, my little children, which is the way he addresses the church. I am writing these things so that you may not sin. He's instructing them to do or not do certain things so that they would avoid sin. But one thing he doesn't do is define sin. So obviously he's assuming that the people have some idea of what sin is. Because he goes on further to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And elsewhere he writes, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and God's word is not in us. That's a pretty powerful statement. The problem is confession. John makes a statement and begins with, if we confess. Then we'll be forgiven. I would love to sit with John and debate that. As a parent, do we not forgive our children long before they come and confess what they did? If God is a loving God, John, as you proclaim him to be, if God is love, then can we not expect God to do the loving thing? Otherwise, we're getting into a tit for tat. I will forgive you if you do something. So he and I would have a debate. Not like last night's, but a decent debate. <laughs> yeah, a real one. <laughs> If we confess our sins, to me, implies that we can only be forgiven if we do something. The act of confessing. What does that do to the word, Jesus is our expiation of our sins? That our sins are removed. And that forgiveness is something God does, not what we do. Confusion? 
So what, I, what I'm getting at is being a good United Methodist is John Wesley's concept of prevenient grace, forgiveness, before you even ask for it. And when people ask me, how would I explain prevenient grace? It would go like this. If you've ever had to deal with a miscarriage in your family or yourself, there's a lot of pain in it. An awful lot of pain. Barbara and I went through two of them. Extremely painful. We've never seen the baby. Baby was never fully developed. Yet we began to imbue that child to be with love. So that before the baby even arrives, there's a loving environment. Right? That's the pain when that ceases. John Wesley says that's how God loves humanity. Before we even understand who or what God is all about, we are loved. Interesting. Do we wait till our, our child is 21, 22 years old before we start loving him to see if he's worthy of our love? Of course not. We start imbuing it as soon as we find out that our spouse is pregnant. Right? So John Wesley's Pavilion Grace says, that's how God operates. Wow. What do we do with that? John's talking about fellowship, unity within the church, and the church is being divided because of the issue of docetism. Was Jesus fully human, fully God, etc.? And people are leaving the church over doctrines. And he's saying that tears the church apart. That separates us from one another. That separates us from God, which is basically sin. I think that's what we can extract from what John says in these three different epistles. And so a definition of sin could be anything that separates us from a fellow human being and from God is a sin. That puts a real burden on us. What do we do? We've, we have so many denominations who have separated over doctrine. And then we wonder why folks are turning their backs on Christianity. There's no fellowship. There's no depth of love. There's no acceptance of one another until they prove that they're worthy to belong to our fellowship. So basically what John, I think, is saying is that fellowship and sin, that which separates, are incompatible. You cannot be separated and still have fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. So for me, at least, anything that separates us from one another is sinful. And I mean anything. Now we can make a whole list if we wanted to of all those things that we see. What do you see society-wise, church-wise? I don't just mean this congregation, but the general church. Where do you see people being separated? 
color, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation. Go down the list. We even go so far at times to talk about those who are not Christian as if they are not special people to God. We see ourselves as superior because we're Christian and they're almost, but not quite. I have many friends of many different religions and people always say, well, how can you be friends with somebody who's not a Christian? Well, we both love the same God. We have different ways of expressing it. Well, you know the group you belong to. There's a real fine line there, isn't there? It's tricky. It's tricky. So uh, John is dealing with something that the church has ignored, and that is our own fellowship is often a sinful fellowship. That we have those divisions within us that prevent the fullness of the gospel from being heard. You've all lived through times in which the church was bombarded by one issue or another. And in many cases, it split the church, both as a congregation and as a denomination and as the body of Christ. I remember growing up in an era where the role of women in the church was still very much a hot issue. Whether or not women should be ordained, whether or not they should be allowed to speak in the church, whether or not they could do anything except teach Sunday school and be part of the women's auxiliary. You know that term, auxiliary, means you're second to, but you're not really a part of. That's what the word means, isn't it? It means not primary, it's secondary too. So the assumption was the woman's auxiliary was secondary to the men of the church who were truly the church. Isn't that the implication? The rest of you two are probably a little bit too young to remember those days. I don't know if you do or not. My mother was the first deacon in the Presbyterian Church. Yeah. First female. Yeah. Yeah. I had my first woman lay leader in 1979. The church had never had a woman as a leader. And she rebelled. She did not want to do it. And I kept saying, Fanny, I'm not giving you a choice. God's calling you. You're going to do it. (laughs) And we're still good friends. We survived it. But it was difficult for her to accept it because she grew up in an era in a church where that was not permissible. That was a sin. But guess what? The church survived. Right? We didn't take on the role of Jesus and we didn't want to judge men. That's not our Right. We don't judge. Yeah. And that's what happens when we judge. Yeah, exactly. By whose standards do we judge? You know, we have to discern. We, we have to make choices. That's just reality. But it's a question of do we make choices on the basis of what we think is most important and that we're the center of what is right and what is wrong? Or do we go to the scripture that says, come now, let us reason together? That's, 
talk this out. Let's hear both sides of the issue. Let's make it work. You can disagree and still maintain your position. You don't have to give up who you are in order to cooperate. So back to if we confess, what, what do you think? Do we need to confess in order to be forgiven? Yes. Okay. Why? Well, confession, the really out in the deep woods, means you know that whatever you've thought or done is against or what pleases God, which infers a fundamental understanding of what's right and wrong in a Christian life. Okay. And, and the key to forgiveness is to acknowledge that. Okay. Yes, but to acknowledge what? That I've acted in an unchristian way. Okay. I want to push it a little bit further. And again, this is radical if you... Don't want to hear it, that's okay. Turn the channel. <laughs> I think what we acknowledge is not our sin, but a thankfulness to God that we've been forgiven for the provenient grace. I'll be honest with you, I've always had trouble understanding provenient grace. Right. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Oh, that's one of the worst doctrines Wesley put together to, to help explain to people. <laughs> <laughs> to, right up. To me, just on a personal level, I always speak for myself. I feel I have to review that behavior. Why did I do that, knowing that it's displeasing? Right. And, and until I go through that, that process, I don't feel this. I feel it's still a burden on my soul. Okay. So are we talking forgiveness or are we talking self-discernment? Finding out... They're, they're linked. Oh, they may be linked, but I think there's a process involved where forgiveness is the opening door of understanding God's grace, the prevenient grace of understanding it's there. God already loves us before we even go to God. Uh, what's the statement say? We love because he first loved us. That's prevenient grace. That, it's that simple. Uh, <clears throat> I use the expression uh, in every relationship, particularly between two people who are married, there's a pursuer and a pursuee. Right? One tries to convince the other that they're the one that they need to make their life complete. Like the old adage, a man chases a woman until she catches him. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> okay, there's a sense in which there's somebody pursuing you because they see something in you that completes them. So John Wesley would probably say, that's what grace is. God is pursuing you because there's something in you God feels is worthwhile. I think it was the English 
theologian, the Anglican theologian William Stringfellow, who said God is like a puppy who constantly nips at your heels, never going to hurt you, but you're always aware that he's just behind you. Interesting. That's the way he understood prevenient grace, that God is always active in trying to get your attention. So like the two-by-four with the mule, when you hit him in the head, now that I have your attention, you know, are you willing to do what you're supposed to do? Okay. Uh, is sin and forgiveness a tit-for-tat equation? God will forgive us if we, forget, if we ask for it. Okay. Why not? He knows exactly how we feel about what we've done or said. He knows it before we know it. Okay. And, and he's there in forgiving us. He's, he's in our heart. He knows it. Yeah. Then what is the purpose of forgiveness then? Could it be to lead us to an appreciation, a greater appreciation of God? What's the goal of any relationship? To know the other person better, to increase your communion with them, to increase your receptivity of one another. See, I, I, I could be wrong. I just have a hard time with a tit-for-tat. Otherwise, what does that do to me as a parent? Do I love my children only when they behave? Because if that's the case, I've often said all of my children are gifts from God. But there were days I did look for the gift exchange office. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right? Anybody who has a child knows that. It just isn't always that easy. And if we are children of God, then I'm sure God must scratch his proverbial head saying, what's going on here? You know better than that. My mother taught me something that has always stuck with me. One of the traditions she had when her sons got engaged, I don't know what she did with the daughters, but with the sons, she sat us down and told us all the things that we thought we got away with that she knew about. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I was right on a beat listening to some of them. And I finally said to Mom, you knew that? He said, and you love me anyway? He said, Danny, that's what grace is all about. Right? That's it. 
God already knows. I'm not enough of a Presbyterian to believe that God knows absolutely every detail. Uh, I always joke about the Presbyterian who fell down a flight of steps. And we got to the bottom and he says, thank God that's over with for the day. I'm not, I'm not in that school of thought, okay? <laughs> I think we make choices and we pay the consequences of our choices. Um, but there's a real problem when it comes to forgiveness. Does forgiveness mean that all is forgiven and all is forgotten? Right. Now, the consequences of sin is forgiveness <laughs> and forgiveness means a restored relationship now a husband and wife might have a major issue with one of them committing adultery the, the trust is broken the other partner can forgive but the partner who broke the trust still has to work overtime to restore that relationship to rebuild that trust that doesn't mean they're not forgiven. It means one of the consequences is you have to restore that relationship that was broken. And that's true within the church setting. When something happens, you can forgive, but you don't remove the consequences. You work through them. You grow through them. Uh, I always remember my neighbor, who's a parishioner of mine, who was killed by a drunk driver, head on. Lingered in the hospital from May to August. And the family had a hard time. They, they finally came to terms with forgiving the driver. But for them, the consequences, they would always be without a father and a husband. That never changes. The drunk driver will always live with the knowledge that he took somebody's life and broke a family. Those don't change. Now, the family changed. Hopefully, he changed. Forgiveness operates, but it doesn't change it. But what it does is either drive you away from the fellowship or pushes you forward to restore the fellowship. And those, I think, are human choices. Those are not God-planned. I think those are choices that we have, that we can be angry the rest of our life over some perceived abuse, or we can work through it. We may never change it. We may never be able to restore the fellowship to what it once was. But you would not deliberately speak ill of that person or think ill thoughts of that person. You would just let it be. Because none of us knows what the other person's motives are ever were. That's what bothers me so much and so much of our current dialogue as a nation. We are assuming things about the other person's motives. How can you? We don't even know our own motives. Uh, anybody who truly knows who they are is a liar or a fool or both. We're learning something new about ourselves almost every day, aren't we? Either verifying or challenging who we think we are or what we are, or what we're about. John speaks of an advocate when we sin. What is an advocate? Okay, you know, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
Well, today, when we use the term advocate, what do we mean? It's a legal term. It's a, somebody who speaks on your behalf. A lawyer. Yeah. Um, whether this is myth within our annual conference or actually happened, I could perceive it as being either one. But I heard early on at annual conference the story of years, I mean years ago, uh, where a pastor committed a moral impropriety. He was being challenged, and in our system, um, it was not uncommon years ago if you committed some major issue within your church ministry, you had to come before the entire executive committee, which is all the retired and active pastors. So today that would be about five, 600 people. And you would have to walk down the, the center aisle and come and stand before a panel, which would be your superintendent, your board of ministry, and the bishop. And you'd have to speak for yourself to defend what went on. And then the decision is made. Now, we don't quite do it that way anymore, but we have a different process. But years ago, that's how it was done. And this young man stood up. There he has 400 and some other pastors looking at him, judging him, thinking about him. So he starts walking down the aisle, the oldest, most respected pastor in the conference, long retired, stood up and walked down the aisle with him. Never said a word, but he was the advocate. He was the one who, by his presence, said, this guy is worthy. This guy doesn't stand alone. I think that's what John has in mind. When we sin, we come before God in our prayers, our forgiveness, whatever. Christ doesn't say a word, just stands beside us. This guy is worthy of my presence. This girl is worthy of my presence. That's what I think John is indicating with that word. Am I right? I don't know. But that's the image I have when I read it. Forgiveness is what God does with or without us, but for us. I think that's what the amazing love is all about. Amazing love, how God it could it be that thou my God would die for me? That's a Wesley hymn. Does that make sense? So I'm not one for making a list of sins. I'm saying anything that does not increase the love of God and fellow man. And anything that decreases the love of God or fellow man is a sinful act. And I think not only in the church, but within society, that operates. And so when I see social issues being debated in the church, um, I sometimes wonder, maybe we're going about it the wrong way. Forget the polling, forget what people think or don't think. What does God say? Take any issue, I don't care what it is. What does God say about it? God is silent on a lot of things. 
that the church gets very perplexed about. And we can point to scripture and say, but it says here. And usually if you take any of the social issues that people are stressed out today, you can quote scripture. But I guarantee you if it has to be anything to do with the acceptance or rejection of somebody or their lifestyle, Jesus is silent. Nowhere does he ever say, you're not welcome. If it's fellowship, we're all welcome. Otherwise, it demeans the meaning of fellowship. Do we all have to agree? Do we all have to like? No, that's not the issue. But just think of this. Where would the church be today if we had not included those people that the church has excluded in the past. Look at the, the vast amount of gifts we would have missed. Look at some of the great music we never would have had. The great poetry. If we were good Jews, even though they weren't Jews at that time, the Hebrews in the days of the psalmist, and if... Most of the Psalms were written by a shepherd. Shepherds were rejected. They were second class. They were dirty, unholy people. Suppose the book of Psalms was taken out of the Bible because we didn't particularly care for their lifestyle. How much weaker would the church be if we did that? So what is a sin then? A sin is very simple. Anything that rejects somebody else by human standards. Does that make sense? This kept us thinking. I can smell I can smell the wood burning. <laughs> What do you think? I'm intentionally being provocative because I think this concept is provocative. The whole idea of deciding who's sin and who isn't. I've always maintained that the avid parishioner in any church has a philosophy that says, my children make mistakes, my neighbor's children sin. I always remember during the Vietnam era, you know, there were young men in, in good conscience who felt that to participate would be immoral and they fled to Canada. And there was one particular church secretary, she was not mine, it was a different church, who was adamant that those guys should be just shot on the spot. That's disgraceful. And one day she changed the tune when she got a postcard from her son from Canada saying, Mom, I'll be back when the war's over. And she had an entirely different concept of what that was all about. All of her neighbor's sons were sinners, but not hers. Don't we do that? Sure we do. Now, does that mean we don't confess? 
No, anybody to go away thinking I'm saying we don't have to confess. I'm saying we don't have to confess to be forgiven. We have to confess to begin the restoration back into the fellowship of God. And that's a big difference. That's not a tit for tat. That's just the reality of restoring the trust, restoring the relationship, which I think is consistent with what John is saying. You have to walk in the light. You have to walk in the fellowship. And when you find yourself off that path, you have to do something to get back on it. That's probably not what you taught, were taught in Sunday school as a kid. You know what I remember about Sunday school the most? I was loved. I can't tell you a whole lot of lessons that I learned, but every one of my teachers was delighted to see me on a Sunday morning, no matter how old or how young I was. In fact, I always go back to Mr. Myers, John Myers, who was a in those days, we had Sunday school superintendents, and his one, both his wife and his son were diabetic. They were acute diabetics uh, in time. His wife was confined to a wheelchair. It was that severe. He himself sang. He had a reasonably good voice. He always sang his eyes on a sparrow. Every Sunday morning, Sunday school opening, we could count on Mr. Meyer singing his eyes on a sparrow. Well, one day he wasn't there. We discovered he was in the hospital. He had throat cancer. When he came back a couple of months later, guess what he did? He sang his eye, his on, his power. I remember that. I don't remember the other lessons that I was taught. He was not consciously remembering them. They're probably there somewhere. But that's the image. Mrs. Tenai, my fourth grade Sunday school teacher, always told me how special I was, which doesn't seem like much, but when you're the ninth of 10 children, that stuck out. Because I was a skinny, funny-looking kid with big ears. But somebody loved me. You know, I knew my parents did. They had to. <laughs> but somebody who didn't know me, other than as a student, that's part of the fellowship. That's how the fellowship nurtures. Just imagine how many people we leave out when we decide who's in and who's out. That's the sin, I think. Um, Robert Frost was on a radio program. It was one of those early talk shows with interviews. And being such a wordsmith, he was asked, and I think it was Edward R. Murrow, but don't quote me if you remember that name or not. And he said to him, what is the ugliest word in the, human, in the English language? And if you ever heard Robert Frost's, the ugliest word, the ugliest word. I mean, he would just dramatically say ugly. And then finally he said, the ugliest word is exclusion. And he was asked why. He said, because it separates people who should be together. Is the church an exclusive fellowship or an inclusive fellowship? 
John's saying, next week we're going to be looking more clearly at what that means in terms of hospitality, who's in, who's out, because John has some clear understandings that we may or may not agree with. Uh, to me, sin is so simple. Either you do it right or you do it wrong. When you do it wrong, you fess up and you go forward and try and do it right. When you do it right, you give God the glory and don't brag about it. It's that simple. I've always been a believer in the statement, there before the grace of God go I. I have no idea what went in to another person's development. So how dare I judge them? I've never been there. That's why it's very difficult as a pastor to do a funeral service. Because you're usually remembering that person you knew when you knew them. But we generally don't know them when they were being formed as a child, when they were going through certain circumstances that either embittered them or enlightened them in their early lives. And it's hard not to judge that. But we don't know about it. Right? And... I'm convinced that everybody has a closet in their lives that they hope and pray nobody ever opens up and looks in. As one of the former bishops said, we are all like the moon. There's a dark side to all of us. What was one of the country and western songs, something to that effect? I, I pray you don't know who I really am. Something to that effect. How many of you have ever been surprised by somebody saying to you, wow, I know something about you that's really special that you probably don't know about yourself. And then they tell you what they heard and how other people interpret who you are. And it's more flattering than you ever imagined. And you say to yourself, that's how you see me? Thank God they didn't see the other part of me. <laughs> right? Anybody who says they don't sin, they lie. And I would add, anybody who believes God doesn't forgive sin, they lie. Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's hope for us, but it's also help for our neighbors. Okay, that's it for the day.